But Weekend Variety Wireless. Ahoy there, troops. Max Cry having a look at bananas. Why is a banana called a banana? I like saying banana. Banana. Also the word spouse. Weird sounding thing. And why is snow snow? That's what Max does. He puts his nose into the books and answers your questions. You can ask Max a question. Get in quickly though. Uh, go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. Use the email form. It's clearly depicted. Uh, you can use the Facebook thing or just uh, write to the station. Miss the story about Gate Pa, a major battle between Maori and colonial forces, which included some Maori, uh, 1874? 1864. It's a famous battle and a weird thing. Some myth and legend has grown around it, but how much is or isn't? A descendant of the combatants on the Maori side and also a military historian tag team talk us through the Battle of Gate Pa after t or about 10.20, 10.30 this evening. Next up, we go to the movies with James Crute. Why on earth are so many of the trailers just... Stop it. A weekend variety. Wireless. At the Movies with James Crute on Radio Live. James Crute, hi. G'day, Graham. How are you? Good. All right. Yeah. Robin Hood, it's been depicted for so many years in so many ways, uh, this mythical green character. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, it's, it, I don't know, it's something that Hollywood loves coming back to. Uh, the number of actual British versus American version would be interesting to know. Errol Flynn yeah, comes to mind. Yeah, exactly. Well, this latest version is a kind of, I don't know, action sort of, you know, modern day reimagining, but set in that time. So it's got Taron Egerton as Robin of Loxley and the Hood, a kind of double character sort of idea. Jamie Foxx. Isn't it? Ben Mendelsohn is the Sheriff of Nottingham, which I actually think is quite a good piece of casting. Tim Minchin plays Fry Attack. Oh, right. Oh, OK. Jeff Murray Abraham also thrown in there. But, it, yeah, it's very much the kind of Guy Ritchie sort of swagger. He did that. There was that kind of awful King Arthur adaptation last year that even had Beckham in it, um, which was pretty bloody awful. But, yeah, this, 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 is, but this is the latest uh, uh, version of it. And, you know, I just think, I just thought it was kind of worth looking back at all the sort of different versions that have been around because you're right every sort of seven or eight years sort of comes around and often they do sort of a double two and one I mean there was that ridiculous period in the 90s where Kevin Costner was one version and Patrick Bergen was the other uh. and almost competing and Why course, did, for goodness sake someone should have while he was alive had Brian Clough as some <laughs> character in there as the manager of Nottingham Forest it would have been lovely yeah, that's right. He should have played some sort of henchman for, <laughs> yeah. for, for Sheriff Nottingham. Of course, uh, that Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves with Costner 
uh, and Christian Slater. Uh, of course, they had that Brian Adams song that kind of uh, sort of sent millions of people along to see the film just for that. But, of course, it also had the great Alan Rickman as the Sheriff of Nottingham mm. playing it like a panto, really. Okay. Almost completely over the top. All right. Um, uh, we've got this, this new one. Um, and the, I just want to play something and have a, uh, a grievance. Yeah. It's about trailers. This is the trailer on YouTube. This is the official trailer for Robin Hood. And we'll, we'll hear it go past. I may, I may make the occasional comment. Why the hell do trailers bang so much? They need this big, huge drummer in a vat. Here we go. You're not Robin of Luxley anymore. You're Robin Hood. Boom, boom. Oh. You were a lord. But now you get to be a thief. And I'm going to show you how. Bang. Shoot me. Okay, people are walking around. He's, he's, Please. he's practicing his bow and arrow. You have to be a warrior. Fast as you can. Why does it bang so much, James? Why do trainers yeah. bang all the time? Bang, bang, bang. God. It's nothing it's like the, the movie. Well, it's to do with, I guess, punctuating the action, giving it, giving it a kind of rhythm. I'm sure it'd be fa- it would be fascinating to talk to because uh, they now have separate people making the trailers. Essentially, the filmmaker often has nothing to do with making the trailer, and you know, often that's why marketing department. That's why I have a grievance because the trailer actually has, because of this, the trailer has nothing to do with a freaking movie. And of course, there are famous examples of things that ended up in the trailer that aren't in the movie. Uh, one of the most famous is The Goonies, the uh, Spielberg-produced movie from the 80s. It had an octopus in the trailer. It actually had an octopus in Cindy Lauper's music video as well. There's no octopus in The Goonies. Really? Yes. This is brilliant. That's a fascinating example oh. of the kind of things. And, and uh, you know, things are littered with these kind of examples. And uh, perhaps another day we can have a discussion on some of the most egregious versions of that because it is truly fascinating. It's <laughs> too much and they all sound the same. Yeah, look, and and now there's these kind of windows where at this point in production you need to have a trailer and particular studios will want to have a week of releasing new trailers. So this week, this past week and a half has kind of been Disney week as new trailers drop for all their latest movies kind of things and then someone else. And then, of course, you've you got to have the Super Bowl trailer and the Thanksgiving trailer oh. and the... You know, you've got to tease it to the point at which you know the entire movie beforehand, but you also know the alternative movie. Uh, Oh, another famous example was Roger Rabbit, uh, Bob Hoskins' live-action cartoon adventure. There's a scene where Bob Hoskins looks in a mirror and goes, Oh, I'm a pig! That's not in the movie. (laughs) Oh, really? Marvellous. Here's some more of this goddamn trailer. Bang, bang, bang. Okay. When do I actually get to, you know, steal? Jesus, make it stop. <laughs> <laughs> to quote Siegfried Sassoon. Okay, all right. Ah, uh, you know, the, I guess the only way to get people into certain kinds of movies is to just bang. bang.
yeah, make make it bang. All right, tell tell us all about this new Robin Hood. It's, it seems like a modernised version, doesn't it? It's all well, very colloquial. Is kind of, everything is a kind of modernised version, but still within the you know realms of many centuries ago and the basic story. Of course, there are two basic Robin Hood stories. One is that he always was an outlaw. The other one is that he was this upper-class Robin of Loxley who became kind of an outlaw, saw the injustices kind of thing. Oh, right. So, you know, it pretty much sticks to it. Of course, there was that quite brilliant TV series back in the 80s with the, you know, Robin. Oh, the hooded man. Yeah. Yeah. They used two of them. So they, when Michael Prade buggered off to do Dynasty, they came up with a second one. Oh. Jason Connery, of course, was Robin of Loxley, and the one earlier was Robin of Huntingdon or whatever. Oh, so it's they, like when they, they decided to play both of them. Okay, it's like when they swapped Harry and Shortland Street for another actor. <laughs> there, there is a great Jason Connery story that I must tell you. Okay. So I got to talk to Jason Connery a year or so ago. He was directing a film about a famous golfing incident, and he was telling me about uh, his uh, days back in, you know, being uh, being Sean Connery's son, of course, and how he once met Sam Neill. Mm-hmm. But his meeting with Sam Neill at the premiere of The Hunt for the Red October didn't go very well because uh, he was so anxious to meet this great actor who'd played Damien and Omen 3 and things like that, that, that he got a little bit overexcited and he tripped and spilt soup all over Sam Neill and oh, his no. tuxedo. Oh no! It's like the first so he's time he felt guilty ever since, and so cast him in this movie just a year ago to make it up for him. Oh, nice! It, was just, it reminds me of the time when I first met Don McGlash and I spilt a whole jug of beer all over him. Wow! Yeah. So, well, it was an icebreaker. We've gotten on very well ever since. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Right. Look, I just think, you mentioned er, um, Errol Flynn, of course, Douglas Fairbanks. There was even a version before Errol Flynn. Oh, yeah. In fact, two versions. One in 1912, that was probably fairly speeded up in those days. <laughs> uh, one in 1922, and, and of course, one of my favourites is actually the Disney version, where he's played by a fox. Oh, no, and, yeah, 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 I like that. Yep, that's yep. good. And, of course, Mel Brooks. Mel Brooks was obviously as incensed as we were by the two competing Robin Hood movies in the early 90s that he decided to make a parody called Men in Tights. Which was okay, but it's not not classic Brooks. You know, it's not Blazing Saddles Brooks. It's not... It's not the producers. Don't be a stupid, be a schmarty. Come and join the Nazi party. Uh, Precisely. (laughs) Bless him. Yeah. Uh, okay, in this new one, uh, do they have trouble with diversity issues because it's set in the uh, hundred? I don't know, whenever it was, 1300s? Well, th- there's always been a character, certainly, and you remember that TV series back in the 80s, Robin Sherwood, mm. where they've had a character who's been either Islamic or a Moor, essentially, as oh, they had right. in those yep, days. Yep. And I think they Morgan Freeman them up in the Kevin Costner Version. So here, yeah, that's that's how they've managed to um, fit Jamie Fox into proceedings. But yeah, it's pretty much a white European male cast. Oh, well, yeah, it's, it is about Robin Hood, isn't it? Yeah, well, exactly. Like, Nottingham and Sherwood Forest wasn't exactly the Nottingham of today, is it? No. And so, I mean, if you're going to make a movie about ABBA, you're going to cast a black lesbian in there? <laughs> no, they're Swedish. All right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. Anything else you want to say about Robin Hood? 
Well, you know, it's just, uh, is, is this a movie that's time to come? I think, I think this is symptomatic of Hollywood's lack of inspiration and um, interest, really, that, that this is coming around again so soon. I mean, you look forward in the next few months and you just see a whole lot of sequels and remakes. I mean, you know, you've got sequels to Wreck-It Ralph and a new Transformers movie, which is more family-friendly. There's another How to Train Your Dragon um, they're even re-releasing Schindler's List. Okay. Oh, really? Mm. And colorized. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Actually, just on the Peter Jackson thing, he's actually going to be using that technology to remaster and upgrade some of his old movies. Oh, nice. So Why not? bad taste. Has and... he run out of ideas? <laughs> well, we're still hoping that he'll make the... Dam busters, and I hear I was reading the other day that uh, he's um, hopeful of getting it off the ground in the next couple of years. You know, the, this and Mortal Engines hopefully will um, generate a bit of interest back in the Sir Peter Jackson brand, and and someone will come to the party uh, and finally make allow him to make Dam busters. Have you got Peter Jackson's phone number? <laughs> no. No. I want to ask him something. I want him to make a movie about Richard Henry, the world's Ooh. first conservationist. God, it'd be good. I've, I've storyboarded it. Yeah. I'm looking for work. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, okay. Uh, if you do get his number, just text it to oh, me. Well. Thanks. Well, certainly will. No oh, worries. Maid Marian. Is this a Maid Marian story with Robin Hood? Yeah, kind of, but it's no Kate Blanchett as Maid Marian. Um, it's it's definitely Marian is on the low key. Eve Hewson, uh, who is uh, known for being in that Soderbergh series, the Nick probably mainly. Um, she's American, even uh, you know. All right. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's all. It's, it's you know, it's a, it's a nice angle. It's, you know. It's, it's, oh, actually, the, the, the upper class chick. Do you want to know who her dad is? Okay. Bono. Oh, jeez. <laughs> no. And her, and her full name is Memphis Eve Sunny Day Houston. I'm surprised it's not Beautiful Day Houston. God. Or the Joshua Tree Houston. Far out. Oh, it's always good angle in Robin Hood with the uh, upper-class chick likes a bit of rough. Yeah. That's basically how it goes. All right, James Crute, thank you very much for the Robin Hood preview and that damn trailer. <laughs> Boom! Here's more. Oh, sugar. There's been whispers. What? Of a thief. It's all about the bangs, James, isn't it? It is always about the bangs. Curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. Words with Max Cryer. Words in papers, words in books, words on TV, words for books, words of comfort, words of peace. Max, Max, Maxity Max, lovely to see you again. It's the Maxity bit in the middle. Yeah, well, it's Max, just Max scans it. to make it a limerick start. <laughs> to make it into a down step. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, if you want to ask Max questions regarding words, their origin and meaning, you've only got a few weeks left, uh, and you can go to the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage. There's an email form there. It's clearly labelled. Uh, and if you ask a question on Facebook, I get it and will pass it on to Max. And if there's an answer, he'll do his best to find out. Our word of the week this week, November 24. And? Oh, no, that's not the word of the week. That's the date at the top. <laughs> Pardon me, Max. There we go. Well, the word of the week I'll announce, ladies and gentlemen, okay. is, is 
I had an email from a friend in the South Island uh, late in the week with a picture taken outside his window of snow covering the entire section he lived in. And I thought, well, this is late November, so we'll have a look at the word snow because yeah. sure enough it cropped up in the news, you know, about ten times. Well, snow... And maybe unexpected cold snap as well. Which is unexpected cold snap is yes, a good one, isn't it? happens every year. Well, snow is defined. The definition is snow... Let's start with ice. Ice is frozen fluid water, but snow is frozen water vapour. Now, in the Northern Hemisphere, versions of this word have been around for over a thousand years, which is not surprising, because the phenomenon of snow has been around for much longer than that. The really ancient Latin word nix or niv and the equally ancient Greek word nifa are the distant relatives of words for snow in uh, in and around European countries in their history. Gosh, it doesn't sound like snow. But it sort of varies. As people, the Netherlands would say schnee. Oh. The Germans would say schnee. And eventually in English they said snore, with an A-W, snore, which modified into snoon, which became sneeuwen, and then snowen, and eventually shortened to just snow. Now, in modern times, the world has evolved two other uses of this word snow. In 1914, it came into use as a slang term for cocaine. And from the 1960s onwards, if you remember them, Graham, it was used to describe visual upsets on a TV screen. Oh, that's right, TV snow. (laughs) I think you can still, you still get that when you set your TV up for the first time, I think. Don't you? Do you? Don't you? Do you? Well, I think if an aeroplane goes in the wrong direction or something happens in the air, that you can get disturbed. It's called disturbance now, but there used to be snow. It's little flecks of white all over the screen. Yeah, 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 yeah. TV snow. And so, yeah, Nevada. Um, just means snow. <laughs> yes, it does. Sierra Nevada, snowy mountains. They sound so flash in another language. It's just snowy mountains, for goodness sake. Well, you it? can call it snowy mountains if you like, Graham. I think I will. Uh, yes, if you're asking for directions to go there, you might strike a wee problem, but we won't worry about that. Yeah. All right, thank you very much. So, that I see now, the N-O-W is the fossil remnant of, of, of the N-O-W, N-O-W, yes, yes. Oh. The N-O-W, it would partly, I should suspect, through a change of pronunciation. Yeah. Um, because I don't think people were actually writing down letter E and O and W and I. Oh, it was all pretty random before Ancient Johnson, wasn't it? centuries past. No, yeah. All right. Uh, now, a spouse. Oh, this was your homework a couple of weeks ago, wasn't it? Because <laughs> it's a funny-sounding word, and it seems, just to my ears, to be pretty much on its own, but maybe not. Well, it's uh, not surprising, I'm sure you won't be surprised, Graham, that this word spouse in English is descended from an ancient Latin word. Oh. But it's quite logical because the Latin word is spondere and it means to bind oneself. And from this, different variations of spondere have travelled through time to form normal English words concerning connection. Not just marriage, but connections such as correspondence, sponsor, response, responsible, to make a solemn promise or pledge, and Two nouns developed from the original spondere. A masculine noun, sponsus, equals bridegroom, and the feminine form, sponsar, 
for bride. Now, they travelled into Old French as spouse for a male who made a promise and spouse with an E for a female who maintained a promise. Then just over 800 years ago from now, the French version, spouse with the E, drifted into English and became either man or woman as betrothed and married to each other. And from that arose the verb to espouse. Oh. To promise oneself to a partner and then marry them. Really? Did you follow that? Um, most of it. <laughs> the, to espouse, I thought, meant to put forward your opinion about something. Well, to be accurate, it would have to be your promise about something, that oh. you espoused a certain belief. Right. You can espouse a certain religion or you can espouse a political form oh. um, or you can espouse a partner. Hmm. Okay. Uh, let's have a look at the phrase, taking the rap. What would you react to the phrase, taking the rap? Someone who probably... Honourably, or maybe not if they were framed, um, is takes the the blame or the punishment for something that they didn't do on behalf of somebody else. That's pretty good, yes. So we'll look at how it arose, taking the rap. Uh, the word has a complex history. Uh, it came into English, rap came into English from Scandinavia, where in Swedish, rapper meant to beat with a quick blow. Now, that travelled over to England in the 1300s with a similar meaning, to beat something, but with a sense of it not being very serious, such as a rap over the knuckles. Mm. Now, similar to drub or drubbing. Now, over the next 400 years in English, rap widened to mean in English to include what we nowadays would call a rebuke. And rap also began to indicate responsibility and blame. It was growing in its applications. By the early 1900s, the word rap had firmed to mean a criminal indictment. And 1927 saw the term beat the rap, meaning to escape punishment, usually by tricky legal manoeuvring. But somehow, the black communities of USA took a liking to this word. They used it to mean talking amongst each other socially in what we might otherwise call family get-togethers or just gossip but they called it rapping. And the big change came in 1973, New York, where a popular MC was known as Coke La Rock, launched his style, his very individual style, of attractive quick slang talk. Now, this was a public extension of what had been described socially as rapping, and there quickly grew a new genre of music known as rap. And the rap style was widely imitated. It attached, it attached a new kind of vocal music, often with improvised words made up on the spot while the person was singing. And within the next six years, this new phenomenon called rap music gradually caught the attention of the music industry as perhaps worth investing in. So scholars put 1979 as the year when rap music was first released commercially. There was a number called King Tim, which reached a huge response and became a top 30 hit. So the term rap music was elevated to a recognised style. And the name, rap, goes back to a knock on the knuckles, which became slang for criminal charge, which evolved into friendly and family chat sessions, which some bold folk stood up and sang with a musical backup. It makes me wonder sometimes. Oh, <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. 
Well, that was very good. But do you need that a... was one of the first ever hits, rap hits. That one. Did it have a band under it? Yeah. Uh, did, what did the band contribute? I'm not familiar with rap. I know what <laughs> rap music is. But... <coughs> oh, it was sort of noise rather than. Bada, 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 bada. Yeah. Rhythmic type. Yeah, um, yeah. There was a bit of sort of brass sounding stuff and drums and. And explosions of yeah. trumpets hollow then. Mm. Very famous piece of music. Well, that's the origin of rap. Okay, good. Uh, Max, we'll take a short break and when we return, we're going to have a look at banana. Or is it banana? Banana, banana, and propaganda, and Yahoo! Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Max is back. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Broken glass everywhere. People pissing on the stage. You know, they just don't care. I remember those words. I've just been announced by a rapper. You have. That's my first time. You're in the hood, I'm in the hood. <laughs> uh, it was, of course, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. The Message. Very, very famous. I think it was the um, first rap hit or something along those lines. I don't know the forensics of the affair, but there you go. All right. Now, somebody has asked, how did the word banana originate? This is a slightly unusual one. It's, it's good. I found it it's quite... It's a great word, banana. Yeah, banana. I love banana. Excellent word. Isn't it? Um, it has an unusual place in social history. Besides the word itself, the social history of the banana is rather odd. Oh. Bananas are believed to have originated in Southeast Asia... And apparently the occasional banana had been seen in early Europe as a very exotic rarity. In ancient Rome, um, they had to make do with borrowing the name for it from a fig. The banana was known there as the paradise fig. Really? But they became known more widely when they were taken from India to the Middle East and then to Africa. Somewhere. Get out. So the Romans had bananas? Yes, very rarely. Uh, but they were taken to Africa sometime around about the year 900. And then Spanish and Portuguese colonists took the banana with them from Africa back to the Americas. And along with it, this is the good bit, along with it, they took the name, the African name, banana, which experts say is from the Wolof language of the Niger Congo area, mm -hmm. where the word banana is believed to derive from the Arabic word for finger or toe. Oh, okay. Which makes sense when you look at bananas. No, only just. Well, the I, could, I could have picked but, another word, I think. Couldn't they, one, Max? Moment, one moment, please. The or that origin is still echoed in the English term for a bunch of bananas, which is still called a hand of bananas. Oh. That's the usual term. Oh. Now, reminding those who study such things that what bananas we're familiar with in modern times are now much bigger than the original. Oh, I see. Ah, yes, yeah, the originals yeah. tended to be quite a lot smaller than that. Yeah. Now, the British had heard about bananas, but the first one sold in Britain came from Bermuda, 1633, and it was sold by a herbalist. And the name hadn't settled completely by then. The fruit was referred to as a bonana or a bonano. Now, in those days, centuries, those centuries, bananas were generally not eaten raw. They were cooked in tarts and dumplings. But the word settled into the language as banana, 
and it developed two colloquial applications. Since the end of the 19th century, banana land has been used as a, by Australians as a colloquial and not altogether complimentary name for Queensland. All right, yeah. A state where the banana is a key crop. You're a banana bender. Even less complimentary is the term banana republic, a term coined in the 1930s for small, volatile states of the American tropics. That have got one thing to sell. Because of their economic dependence on mm. the export of bananas. Another um, unexpected use of the word comes from American theatre, early American theatre variety, which often featured three comedians. They had varying levels of importance and status. There was a third banana, who was the, the least famous, <laughs> a second banana, who was second in rank, and the first or top starring comedian was the top banana. I love that. That's where it comes from. I'm now, the top banana around here. The, 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 the categories arose from an old theatre custom that when the top-ranking comedian had finished his act and was being applauded, he was handed a banana. So the lower-ranking comedians looked forward to the day when their careers put them higher up in the pecking order and they too would become top banana. That's but the word, to answer the listener's question, the word comes from the Wolof language mm. from the Niger Congo area. Mm. Okay. This is fascinating. I might actually go outside and just listen to you on the radio. That would be great. But you can listen to me here. Oh, yeah. We the are. Same. Listeners, in case you're wondering, we do sit in the same studio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was uh, a headline in the newspaper, absolutely straight up, no joke, printed headline uh, from... It was a story out of Zimbabwe. I think it was in the Herald. Banana accused of sodomy but escapes. That had to be a joke. No. Was the person, was there somebody called Mr. Banana? There was, Mr. Banana. And he certainly wasn't the top banana in Zimbabwe, but he was up there. He might have been third or fourth banana. And he was, they wanted to get rid of him. So they accused him of sodomy, which is probably punishable by death in Zimbabwe. I don't know. Uh, it's frowned upon. And but yeah, that was the title. Banana accused of sodomy but escapes. I've kept it. It's still on my wall. So the sub-editor and the editor let that go through to the public. Well, the thing is, how else would you put it? His name is actually Banana. But you didn't... Well, I, I mean, I'm not concerned. It's none of my business. But mm. I, it just seems to me um, a rather inelegant way of attracting attention to a newspaper. Uh, how else would you do it? Person. But that's really very little information. This banana guy was in big trouble and he was trying to muck up um, the, the, the ruling party, which was a thing. Oh, yeah. And that, that, is, that allows everything, does it? I suppose so. Well, if his name... Except sodomy. If his name's banana, <laughs> yeah. OK. Uh, now, the origin of propaganda. Propaganda with an A. Um, when I used to hear this word... Uh, that means having a decent look at something, isn't it? Uh, no, not no, quite. Do you know what's over in the valley? No, go and have a propaganda. Ah, but that's ER. Oh. You see, that I was, when I was younger, I didn't know the propaganda and a goose were the same word. Because a gander, a G-A-N-D-E-R, which is what you just said, is not the same as G-A-N-D-A, propaganda. Oh. Oh. Propaganda means, or the person wanted to know the meaning and the origin of well, the word, Propaganda sounds as if it means a well-mannered goose, but in fact, it arises from two Latin words meaning cut and fasten, and they together make up the concept of reproducing. <clears throat> we use the word all the time, the verb, because talking about raising seeds and crops, you talk about 
propagate them, how to propagate your plants. Now, in 1622, Pope Gregory XV decided that he wanted more people to join the Catholic part of the Christian Church, so a committee was set up called the Sacre Congregatio di Propaganda Fide, the sacred group for reproducing the faith. Over the years, there was a slight level of cynicism developed about the precise meaning of what was happening because in using the word propaganda, the committee was supposed to be merely reproducing the existing faith for anyone who was interested. But it became clear that the real purpose was to spread the word around that joining the Pope was a good thing. And to do this, the information being put about was designed in such a way as to make the whole prospect of joining this religious group seem very desirable. So propaganda, which should mean simply reproducing, gained popular usage of spreading information which is strictly controlled and is presented to make something look at its best. It's sometimes connected with the word spin. This comes from ball sports where a person learning to throw a ball can learn to add a spinning technique so that the throw is difficult for the offsiders to know exactly what path that ball will follow. The ball is being thrown in a normal manner, but the way in which it's being spun deceives the eye. This expression moved over to describe the way people made statements or answered questions. They were presenting information which was spun like a ball. Mm. So the effect of the words they were saying distracted the listener from the basic core truth. So both propaganda and what we call spin doctoring show an element of manipulation. In mm. both cases, the truth may be being spoken, but the words are arranged to give a desired impression rather than making a simple statement of fact. There was uh, an Australian bowler by the name of Kasprovich. He was a pace bowler, reasonably fast, very good off, off a decent run-up, almost always on a good length, difficult to hit. Difficult to hit was Kasprovich. Uh, every now and again, um, he'd, he'd bowl one that was just, just a bit different. And the commentator was... Kerry O'Keefe, who's very funny, and he was the comments man. The commentator said, I wish I had the audio, this is absolutely true. Kasprovich, outside off stump, oh, he's left that, but that was very, very close to the off stump. And Kerry O'Keefe said, that's his Rock Hudson delivery. <laughs> You'd have to tell me. It looks straight. But it's not. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I can't think that we can date that back to the Pope. <laughs> no. All right. Uh, let's go to Yahoo. Yes, yeah, someone wants to know where does the word Yahoo comes, come from? Well, it's um, not all very common when you're looking into the ancestry of a word to find an actual specific date of when the word originated, but you mm. can do that with Yahoo. It was invented in 1726. That's it. Where was it invented? Well, there was a book called Gulliver's Travels, which was published, and in that book, the author, Jonathan Swift, introduced a race of people he invented to whom he gave an invented name, the Yahoos, described as brutes in human form. Commentators and literary interpretators advise us that Swift intended this ugly race to represent the state Europe was politically in at the time and humanitarianly also in not a good state at the time. 
Who were the Yahoos? They were primitive creatures obsessed with pretty stones that they found by digging in mud. <laughs> yes. And Gold this, miners. This represented the distasteful materialism and ignorant adetism Swift encountered in Britain. So the term Yahoo came to mean a crude, brutish or obscenely coarse person described by Swift as filthy and with unpleasant habits, a brute in human form, resembling human beings far too closely for the like of Mr. Lemuel Gulliver, who first found them in, in fiction. He found the calm and rational society of horses far more intelligent, preferable, and he called them hoonimimims. And he preferred to preferred being... Yeah, okay, I have to say that one again, Max. <laughs> what is it? That was Gulliver's invented word. How are you spelling that for everybody? H-O-U-Y. Yeah. H-N. H-N-M-S. Oh, of course. If yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> if you say it to a horse, the horse will understand. <laughs> now, the frontiersman Daniel Boone often used terms from Gulliver's travels, and he claimed that he once killed a hairy giant that he called a yahoo, and the word might have a relative because during the 1840s it was discovered that the native races of Australia, I better say some of the native races in Australia, believe in what was known as a word seemingly derived from Yahoo. Uh, Australians heard it as Yowies. Now, the Yowies were a race seldom if ever seen, living way in the outback. They were said to resemble a man with long white hair hanging down from the head over their features, extraordinarily lengthy arms showing great talons at the end, and with feet turned backwards so that, wait for this, if they were running away from man, the imprint of the foot appears as if they were being travelled in the opposite direction. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> now, altogether, they described or have been described as a hideous monster of ape-like appearance. So, although they have never actually reliably been seen, and since Gulliver's Travels has acknowledged fiction, I think we can possibly perceive that the Yahoos of Australia are strictly imaginary people, but represented among humans as the more noisy, undisciplined members of our own race. Mm. Plus, the word Yahoo went into wider use 1994, mm when a pioneering internet search engine was called Yahoo. Mm. You, do get, you, know, I think you do get quite a flock of Yahoos. I don't know what the collective noun would be, but uh, we'll go for flock, a rabble a re of, of Yahoos around Cronulla on a Saturday night after the Sharks have lost. Yes, but then you're using it in a, in a sort of literary way. Aren't oh, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're not actually hairy people with their feet turned backwards. So I want to mention the well, why. Yeah, anyway. I want to mention the week, a few days' time, 28th of November. We have been so proud and have had so much publicity about the lead-up to New Zealand women being allowed to vote for Parliament that on the 28th of November, which is next Wednesday... They've got the vote, have they, Mitch? Have they got They really? have indeed, Mate, yes. Where you know? Well, next Wednesday, you're going to know... next? <laughs> well, you're going to know because next Wednesday is the anniversary of the day that New Zealand ladies went to the poll for the first time. Uh -huh. They actually, they not only just won the vote, but they actually went and voted on November the 28th, ten weeks only after the Governor, Lord Glasgow, had signed the Electoral Act of 1893 and made it law, thereby making this country the first in the world in which, now listen to this, in which women had the right to vote in parliamentary elections. It's important to get those words right because there were women voting in other places. By November the 28th, 
109,461 women, which was about 84% of the whole adult female population, had enrolled. They were allowed to enrol, and they did enrol to vote in the election. On polling day, 90,290 women cast votes, which was a turnout of 82%, far higher than the 70% registered among male voters. Uh-huh, so good. more women voted yeah. than men on the 28th of November. Well, an exciting opportunity. Firsty pops, exactly. get out there. Yes, quite so. That's why I want to draw attention to it, because it's a date that we don't hear much about. Yeah. There had been warnings, of course, from opponents of women's suffrage that lady voters might be harassed at polling booths. But, according to a Christchurch newspaper, the streets, quote, resemble the garden party. Yeah. The pretty dresses of the ladies and their smiling faces lighted up the polling booths most wonderfully. It would have a calming influence, I would assume, for the, the day. historic election day passed off in a relaxed, festive atmosphere. Yeah. Oh, well, good one. Thank you for remembering that, the actual day when they went and did the thing that they'd fought for. 109,000 of them. Yeah, it's a lot for the day, isn't it? It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and quite a while before they had a woman to vote for. Too. Yes. Oh, yeah. that took a while. Okay. Max Cryer, thank you very much. If you want to ask him anything along these lines, you can do it via the Facebook page. That's easy. There's an email form on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage as well. That famous tune, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, The Message, the first rap hit. And uh, we're doing a thing later on this evening, Grant Smithies and myself, myself uh, on great lyrics. It's utterly subjective but we've got ourselves an array and this one should have been in there i reckon because it's of its kind of uh, momentous nature so we'll give it a bit of a blast now grandmaster flash and the furious five it's like a jungle sometimes thank you max Keep from going under. Standing on the front stoop, 
hanging out the window, watching all the cars go by, roaring as the breezes blow. A crazy lady living in a bag, eating out of garbage pails, used to be a fag hag, such a dance to tango, skipped the life and dango, was her gone crazy, seemed to lost her senses, down at the peep show, watching all the creeps, so she could tell her stories to the girls back home. She went to the city and got so, so, so ditty, she had to get a pimp, she couldn't make it on her own. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge, I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes, it makes me wonder how I keep from going under. My brother's doing fast on my mother's TV. Says she watches too much. It's just not healthy. All my children in the daytime, Dallas at night. Can't even see the game or the Sugar Ray fight. The bill collectors, they ring my phone and scare my wife when I'm not home. Got a bum education, double digit inflation. Can't take the train to the job. There's a strike at the station. Neon King Kong standing on my back. Can't stop to turn around. Broke my sacroiliac, a mid-range migraine, cancer membrane. Sometimes I think I'm going insane. I swear I might hijack a plane. Don't push me. Call, I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. It's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. Funny how those lyrics of any rap tune, those stuck with me the longest. Okay. We'll pull up from Grandmaster Flash, and probably not before time. God, the thing goes on. How long is it? Six minutes in all? You've got enough there. Uh, new sport and weather coming up shortly. And oh, heads up after 11 o'clock. Great lyrics, part one. Grant Smithies and myself, utterly subjectively, but why not just array a few and try and explain why? And that's what people are doing with our Read Me a Poem series. And Tim Finn, fine lyricist, is our guest tomorrow night. He reads us a poem that he likes and tells us why. Simple as that. Tomorrow night, 10.30.